now hear argument in uh, Duval versus Novant Health. Uh, Mr. Cox. Thank you, Your Honors. May it please the court. I'm Stephen Cox, and together with my co-counsel, Charles Johnson, uh, we represent Novant Health, the defendant appellant in this case, which is a hospital system based in Charlotte. The plaintiff appellee, Mr. David Duval, was formerly the senior vice president of marketing and communications for Navant. He's a white male. Mr. Duval was hired in April of 2013 by Jesse Curitan, a black male, who at the time was executive vice president for Navant, their chief consumer officer, and he hired Mr. Duval over a slate of diverse candidates. So you're, you're here after a Rule 50B ruling? Correct. Yes, sir. So you've got a fairly steep hurdle to climb because we have to conclude that the only conclusion the jury could have reached would have been for you. I think I think the standards expressed in Dijonet, as we said in our papers, was on a Rule 50B motion involving a disparate treatment claim, there must be evidence that there was a reasonable probability, not a mere possibility, that the decision was illegally motivated by discriminatory intent. That's the question. And Mr. Duvall's argument in this case, which the district court accepted, was that he was indeed the victim of an unlawful DEI plan, as the district court said, namely the DEI initiative with an express timeline to remake the workforce to reflect the community. Well, the jury must have accepted that to a certain extent as well. Yes, sir, they did. That's exactly right. And that's why we moved for judgment as a matter of law, which the district court denied. Uh, point out two important facts here, which are undisputed. First of all, Mr. Duvall himself said he had a good working relationship with Mr. Curitan. He did not personally feel he had been discriminated against. He said after his termination, he later came to think the DEI plan was wrongfully applied to him. But this is a critical point, also undisputed. The Diversity and Inclusion Council that Novant Health formed to implement its plan was a council that included Mr. Duvall. And Mr. Duvall testified at trial that he had no complaints about that plan and that diversity at Novant Health was properly he done. Got fired. I'm sorry, Honor. He had no complaints till he got fired. But the evidence he's now citing as evidence that the plan was improper is the very same evidence he sat on a council and reviewed while a member of the council. For example, he claims it was improper. Now, you that one learns from their mistakes. Who knows? Well, I guess it's a little more than that, I believe, Your Honor, because what he testified was while he was on the council in May, for example, of 2018, when the council was reviewing workforce demographics, he made no complaint about that. He thought it was properly done. Now he says it's improper. If you look at the cases we've cited, uh, there are four cases in particular, two district courts from this circuit, also a Sixth Circuit case and a Sixth Circuit district court case. It is not uncommon, as evidenced in those cases, that employers have diversity plans in which they demonstrate a strong commitment to diversity. That kind of plan, that kind of commitment, wanting a diverse workforce to be able to deal with an increasingly diverse patient base or customer base, that's not ipso facto unlawful. You have to show that there's some connection between the decision made by the decision maker here, Mr. Curitan. I think that's probably a fair statement, but why, does the evidence that the district court summarized in its order, including the um, stated reason for his termination and the you know, arguments that that 
that those reasons weren't valid because they weren't documented um, you know, in the statements that Mr. Curidan made to him when they were terminated. Why does that not provide at least circumstantial linkage to his claim that this plan, while you know, maybe proper and a good thing, to him was applied in a way that was discriminatory. Thank you for asking that question, Judge Quattlebaum. I was just about to go there. And just so I'm clear on your question, you're talking about this, the reasons Mr. Curitan gave for his termination at the time? Yes, sir. Thank you. So let me be very clear here. Mr. Curitan has candidly and consistently said throughout this case that Mr. Duvall was a good performer and got Novant help where he wanted Novant to be. This is not a case where Mr. Curitan fired Mr. Duvall and said, you're just a bad marketing guy, and then changed his tune later on, or vice versa. He has always said Mr. Duvall did a good job. He complimented Mr. Duvall for doing a good job. But there was a telling statement from Matthias Krebs, who was a subordinate of Mr. Duvall's, and he loved Mr. Duvall. He said he was his favorite boss ever, but he also said he leads from behind. He leads from behind. The jury heard all that. Correct. And they also were aware, multi-billion dollar corporation, tens of thousands of employees, but yet they terminate this employee with zero documentation. That's just unheard of in today's business world, I think. So then you have the man who fires him actually got a lower engagement score than the plaintiff did. And it just, I can see the jury looking at that somewhat askance. I want to talk about those engagement scores. That was a team member engagement score. I think Mr. Curitan's were like 4.0 and Mr. Duvall's was 4.5. You're right, Mr. Duvall's was higher. But the way that score was measured was engagement downwards. That is, are you favored by your team members who report to you as being someone who's engaged with them? What Mr. Curitan was concerned about was engagement upwards with so the board how of directors. Did he document that before he terminated Mr. Paul. I, I think Mr. Curitan acknowledged that there was no documentation of that. I think he acknowledged that. However, Mr. Curitan said he had expressed to Mr. Duvall that he was concerned about his lack of engagement with the board. And there's an email in the record, I think it's Exhibit 67, in which Mr. Duvall himself acknowledged that being at board meetings is important. Now, we may disagree, Your Honor, with Mr. Curitan. You may say, well, you know, you're engaged with your subordinates. It's a really high score down there. Who cares if you're engaged with the board? But once we start second guessing an executive's decision like Mr. Curitan's, because you think this level of engagement is preferable to that one, that's a business decision. That's not a legal decision. Okay, so it's not the requirement that it be a central reason, the only reason, but for causation. It just has to be a motivating factor. And some of the circumstantial evidence here is would seem to be pretty strong when a jury thinks about it. You know, there are seven white men working for Mr. Curitan, and then they're all gone. And there's some, like Mr. Brager, yes. who seem to be a fairly ideal comparator. Well, keep in mind- we heard all that. Keep in mind- Entitled to make reasonable decisions and inferences from that. Well, keep in mind, if you look at those actual folks, I think it was Brazier, Caldwell, C. Halston, and Hayes, if you take each one of them, you actually look at the facts. 
The testimony about Mr. Brazier was that they that Mr. Curitan and Mr. Brazier mutually agreed that he would leave. He had been hired as a secretary of human services in North Carolina. He wanted to do something else. He was replaced by an African-American male who himself was later fired. So if the idea is that this person is evidence of discrimination, when in fact the jury is entitled to look at these things and come to a conclusion based on all of the evidence. And it could conclude, it seems to me, wouldn't be required to, but it could conclude that there's a pattern of eliminating white males in order to accommodate another group. No, sir, I don't believe that's the evidence. As I just said about Mr. I just explained Mr. Brazier, Mr. Caldwell was hired, but somebody else, not Mr. Curitan, fired him. Mr. Seehausen was fired and replaced with another white male. Who replaced Mr. Mr. Duvall? Mr. Duvall was ultimately placed by Vicki Free, a black woman. Ultimately, and was replaced in the interim by another woman. So that's that's one instance, Mr. Duvall's instance alone, in which there are not explanatory circumstances other than discrimination. If I may pivot, because I'm conscious of my time, if I, if I may pivot and go ahead to the mitigation question, which is the second major situation, major issue in this case. So, as this court said in Brady almost 40 years ago, a Title VII plaintiff, in order to be eligible for back pay, must exercise reasonable diligence in both seeking and accepting work, both. And a claimant who fails to actively seek work is not allowed to get back pay for the time when it, which he is not actively seeking work. It is undisputed in Mr. Duvall's own words that from the time he was fired until now, or until the time of trial, he never, ever applied for a job. And what he said was, at my level, it's typically not done. And he was asked again by counsel at a deposition. That testimony was introduced at trial. It's in the record. He never applied for a job. Instead, all he did was he responded to corporate recruiters who reached out to him. He had a LinkedIn network. He was specifically asked about that LinkedIn network, and he said he responded to people who reached out to him. He was entirely passive the entire time. It's the interesting um interesting mitigation case. Um, he says, uh, acknowledge, he says the things you just recited, I think he would probably attribute more activity to what he did with his LinkedIn account. Um, but, you know, he, it, it seems, uh, let me know what you think about this. It seems that whatever he did, generated a decent amount of interest and activity to him. Um, yeah, I know you got a separate argument on accepting opportunities. In terms of generating opportunities, whatever he did seems to have produced a decent amount of them, including one that led to a job. So I've um, yeah, it's kind of odd mitigation case you know, from what he did, it's also an odd mitigation case when someone has actually obtained a, a, another employment opportunity like right. this. So, uh, yeah, just just curious as to why we can't look at the circumstances, or, or or why the jury couldn't look at the circumstances of this type of employment, and kind of come to the conclusion that yeah, that's that's how it works, and it seemed to be producing, you know some opportunities or activity for him, including the fact that I think 
Navant used a recruiter to attempt to replace him. How's that not give us enough that the jury, at least on his efforts, were reasonable enough? Well, um, I guess the judge was the one to accept those because the back pay and front pay issues were for the judge to decide. And, that, and he found that. He found just what you said, Judge Quattlebaugh. Right. I guess he, if you basically adopt... Yeah, this rule, is not the jury. This is the... Right. This is your, yeah. Correct. Okay. If you adopt a rule of law that says... Well, if you're in a line of work where you don't actually go out and have to look for it, work just comes and finds you. You're in a white collar job. Cor companies are going to hire corporate recruiters. They're going to come to you. People will knock on your door eventually. Then basically you're cutting out half of the Brady case. You're saying you no longer have to be reasonably diligent. Uh, we seeking. would put folks like Mr. Duvall in the same bucket as the person who's gone to Applebee's to apply for the dishwasher job that he could start this afternoon. You would put him in the same bucket as someone you expect to do something to find a job. Yes, sir. You have well, to be. He had the jury heard that six weeks after he was fired, he had his first interview with uh, Henry Ford. He was interviewed extensively by Johns Hopkins, but not offered the job. So there's evidence there that it would seem that, a, that the trier of fact could conclude, yeah, there was a significant effort being made. No, sir, I don't. I disagree with that. Here's why. There's evidence from which a court could conclude that the job found him, but he admitted he didn't apply for it. It just found him. He said, this is not how we typically do it. We don't apply for jobs. And after the Henry Ford job, there are two periods of mitigation here. I think they're important, right? He does initially get a job at Henry Ford. He's terminated from that position in January of 2020. After that, he didn't apply for any job. Four people approached him, again, corporate recruiters, not through his own efforts, but just because the recruiters approached him and he did not follow up. He did not do so much as a phone call to call them back after they didn't call him. And most importantly, he turned down the Cape Fear job. He didn't consider it. Didn't even ask what the salary was because he thought the system was too small. It was a billion dollar system with only two direct reports and a team of 10 people. And remember what the court said in the Brady case, this court, and what the middle district said in the Lampley case that after a time, a Title VII plaintiff is obliged to lower his sights and seek the best job available. He did not even consider the Cape Fear job. So if you make a mitigation argument during that first half up to Henry Ford because he got work, whatever it was, there's no effort after that. After that, he has four people knock at his door. He dismisses one out of hand, and he doesn't follow up on any of them. So let's I think say, let's assume hypothetically we agreed with we disagreed with your argument, you know, pre-Henry Ford and, you know, agreed with your argument after that. Yes, sir. What's the effect of that on the, you know, front pay and back pay awards? What, uh, first of all, I think there is evidence in the record for which the court could do the math itself and adjust the award based on what's in the record, or you could remand to the district court to do that math. What's your position on the the economic effect. The, the economics. I, I have to run my calculator one more time, Judge Quattlebaum. I believe here's how the economics generally shake out. He gets about a couple of hundred thousand dollars in back pay because the Henry Ford money almost entirely offset everything up to that point. And it would be foreclosed entirely on front pay under the Greer versus Zimmer case and the cases that it cites. Because if you don't look for work, that forecloses front pay and the undisputed evidence out of his own mouth is that he has not looked for work since leaving Henry Ford. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much. Um, Mr. Largis. 
Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, and may it please the court. Luke Largess, on behalf of Mr. Duvall, let me let me pick up right where you just left off, because I think it's a, a basic issue and a little out of the order I plan to go. Um, you speak up just a little bit. Yeah, I'm sorry. Let me try to get this uh, better. Novon has the burden of proof on the mitigation, not Mr. Duvall. They keep talking about how he didn't meet his obligation. They have not put on any evidence to your question of how an executive finds a job compared to a dishwasher at Applebee's. They haven't put any evidence that there's a process where this now twice fired in 18 months man can go and knock on doors to find a comparable job to what he had. The standard of review on mitigation was it an abuse of the dis of discretion of Judge Kerr, and was it clear error of fact for him to say that using the methods as you as you said, Judge Qualabam, the method of using the executive recruiters generated six or seven opportunities that he all explored until he finally got the offer from Henry Ford. Mr. Curitan himself said it takes nine to 12 months to find and hire one of these kinds of positions. What's the, um, what about the, I think he, or, and I don't know if I'm saying this exactly right, but he, he kind of set himself a minimum pay you know, requirement and it was not open to, or at least this is the argument, please help me with this, that he said, you know, some amount of pay that he wasn't going to go below and, um, you know, called out some based on that and then called out the Cape Fear um, opportunity because it was just too small. Well, they're, they're, it's in these two different phases that you're talking about, Judge. So let's let's yeah, I think you have to treat it that way. Okay. He he had an opportunity in the hopper, if you will, with Henry Ford and continued to look at all these other chances. Um, some were at a level significantly lower than what he had been earning. And so he had those categories, but there's no before evidence. to Henry Ford or after he got fired? Before the Henry Ford I'm talking okay. about. That this sort of, he talked about, he looked at a couple of the positions that were there and said that that's a lower amount of money than what I'm interested in. But there's no evidence that he would have gotten that job or how and it was. I, and doing. I guess your argument there would be he's he's looking at things, you know, in conjunction with the Henry Ford opportunity as well. And it, it probably is hard to say it's unreasonable to be pursuing the one that pays the most and looks like the best fit. So what about the, um, it what was, about after he was fired that that's, um, you know, he apparently had one offer is, did he have a Cape fear offer? No, he didn't have an offer. He had an inquiry from Cape fear and he described that conversation and judge care found, and I don't think this is clear error, but that was, very quickly after he'd lost the job at Henry Ford, that the, they, they sort of have this time running from when he was fired at Duke, at Novant, but he had just been fired from a superior, higher paying job than Novant at Henry Ford. And he gets approached, as he described it, by a person from Cape Fear trying to see, actually networking with him as to who he knew. She didn't even think that he would be considered for that kind of position. But the Judge Kerr found that that was too early on and too 
you know, under Brady, you don't, and Ford, you don't have to take a lower position that's going to diminish your professional reputation. So he was looking at that. And at that same time, he had these three inquiries from Brigham and Women's in Boston, Ohio State, and Westchester, this large hospital in wealthy county in New York, that just turned to dust when they found out that he was in litigation. Yeah. The part of this case that is very interesting is what's the impact when someone's pursuing their legal remedies and it makes them a hot potato or a red flag or however you want to call it, but just someone you don't take a risk on. This is a man who his LinkedIn page, he he contacted your, I, I appreciate you noting that he was more aggressive on his LinkedIn than the defendants say, but he posted to all those people, but there is his honest CV. With this seven-month gap from Novant to Henry Ford, and then, I mean, an eight, the gap there, and then seven months of employment at Henry Ford before he's gone? What's the significance, if any, of the statement that Henry Ford gave when they uh, reached their settlement agreement that Mr. Duvall was uh, terminated without cause? Because under Brady, there's this sort of the, – the, the, Brady sort of gets into this, this discussion about when a, an, involuntary, the, an involuntary termination for cause is comparable to a voluntary termination in terms of cutting off your right to back pay. If you're fired in an, in, in an intermediate job or interim job because of misconduct, you don't have a right to get back pay from the prior employer. But if you're fired for no reason whatsoever of your own doing, that that triggers the entitlement to back pay again. And they haven't challenged that legal principle under Brady. They've sort of skeptical that he was fired because of, by Ford because of the lawsuit. But in fact, he was, well, whether that's the case or not, there's this statement that you just, you're talking about. He was not fired for cause. So under Brady, under this court's precedent, that triggers the entitlement to back pay again. And he testified not just to LinkedIn, not just to headhunters, but that he looked at trade journals and reached out to try to find connections whenever he saw an opening. They did not cross-examine him at trial on any of those three things. They had the burden of proof. How can he, his, and the judge credited that testimony, that unchallenged testimony, that that was adequate effort. You're standard of review is, is that clear error? And where, where they're not cross-examining testimony and he relies on it, that's not clear error. So what, if you go back yeah, and uh, tell us what's in, I mean, I realize it's, it's their burden, not yours, but what's in the record about the Cape Fear job? They cross-examined him about it at trial and he explained what i just told you is i remember the record and i'll look at it but just that they that they he that when he had these four contacts from people right after henry ford one of them was from cape fear he they talked a little bit about the size of the operation going from 80 employees to to two direct reports and 10 staff and a seventh of the budget it was, in his view, since he had these other opportunities like he had just done before with Henry Ford, he had these other contacts with these other larger systems, he was going to explore those. 
That's what the evidence is in the record. And again, I don't think it's clear error for Judge Kerr to have found that his decision not to pursue that early on is not yet at the point in under Brady and the other cases where if enough time goes by, you have to lower your sights. He said that the time that time hadn't gone by yet because there are all these other chances that are there right at that moment. And I don't think that's clear error. Again, they they didn't go to Ford to try to find out why he's fired. They didn't they didn't talk to the woman at Cape Fear. It's their burden of proof to show that these were real opportunities that he should have considered or what the circumstance was of not taking them. Also, can I switch gears to a different issue? And this is punitive damages. Um, district court uh, seems to um, affirm the, or, or, or deny the Rule 50 motion. You know, I think exclusively based on an inference that Mr. Curitan, given his level at Navant, would have been exposed to appropriate amount of Title VII related training. Um, I think if I could, not just at Novant, but a man who'd had a corporate career at Bank of America and who had you know answered questions have you ever been in a situation where there were quotas or targets or any of that i, I, I just think someone at that level understands the basic principle let, let, let me, i should ask my question first yes thank you um, i'm sorry that's okay you, I mean, you're 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 right on it but the um my, my, more specifically is you may be right that may uh, that may be a, a, a an inference that i would think or you would think but do you have authority where punitive damages have been awarded based on an inference alone? I don't know that there's a case in this circuit on that, Your Honor. Right. But I but I I do think that the holdings in all these other cases, including the two that they cite, the the, the Federal Express case and and the other out of the Middle District, is this a rudimentary knowledge? And those are cases where people have gotten some basic but every time I, I think all the cases I've seen with rudimentary knowledge and, and I'll grant you that seems like a pretty low bar the way our um, precedent describes it. Right. But usually at least the decision maker, there's evidence, not you know, direct evidence, not, you know, inferences that that decision maker is maybe even seen as little as a poster, but that there's something specific about the decision maker. And here, I, I, you know, I've just, it, it, it strikes me as unusual, and maybe it's okay under the Rule 50 standard that you have punitive damages, which is an extraordinary you know, form of relief based on an inference. I think what the, and the question is, would it under Rule 50B, where the judge found where the judge found that the jury made a reasonable inference, is that that's all right? It's just, no, the the oh. judge's decision was that the the only thing that it, it discussed in the motion was you know his kind of corporate expertise or corporate experience. That's true, Your Honor. And, but, I, but, but I think you can't blink reality. I mean, 
that this is a black man who's, you know, grown up in an era where opportunity came available for him. And he has been a leader in the one of the largest banks in the country. And to say that he does not understand that you cannot fire people because of their race and gender. I mean, that's the fundamental legal issue here. I think everybody, you don't have to be a lawyer and you don't have to go to a seminar to know that it's illegal to fire people because of their race and gender, I don't think. Well, that's almost asking. That, that, that may be true, but it seems like you're basically saying we should all take judicial notice of that. I mean, it's your burden to prove the first element of reckless indifference, and that's the decision maker had a known risk. And and what you just said may makes some sense in a common sense sort of way, but I don't. Yeah, it's coming cl awful close to saying, "Look, I don't really have to prove this." No, I don't think it. I th I think what what in probably the error in the trial in sort of handling that issue at trial. But if, uh, I asked Ms. Blackman, the head of the DEI program, right. that in setting up this program, she knew that you couldn't fire people, right? And she's agreed. And it's and I think and I think of, that. And I think the significance of that is that they're doing all this training about this program. They're talking about it all the time at the board. They, you know, that it's a reasonable inference that they're talking about the limits on what it can do and, and that you can't, whether or not you can fire people. If you look at, look at the October um, 2018 uh, Diversity Inclusion Committee report. I actually have a copy of it here. I can give you the page number. But the, um, I'm familiar with that. This is the one where there's the quote about we're not after quotas, we're, but we can set targets. But in that is there's all this discussion about, you know, what's the future for white employees in this organization? What's what can happen here? Is diversity a characteristic that we can rely on sort of in hiring people? So there's a lot of discussion in this whole trial about the limits of sort of what you can do in doing a DNI program. Yeah, I mean, and had that been you know, pre-termination, it would be stronger for you. Uh, maybe you would infer that they were talking about those things before, and maybe they were, but I'm just struggling with the inference, you know, compared to more direct evidence when we're talking about an issue, you know, such as punitive damages. So so are you saying, though, that if, and I sort of have an, a thought here, Judge, if you're saying that if I had asked him the same question I asked Ms. Blackman and he'd said he understands that? Well, I don't know. I'm, I would mean, that be sufficient? You, you got to prove your case and you did a good job. So I'm not here to second guess you, but, but you know, you got a, a, a verdict. But I'm, I'm just looking at the evidence and it strikes me as fairly um, unique to have a punitive damages award based on an inference alone. And I think the punitive damage award was based on, I mean, for example, Your Honor, we, yeah, maybe an inference alone, but I, I, I just don't see it that way. I think that the presentation of the case and of the legal arguments about what you can do, that the, that the jury, under, the jury, it is an inference, but the jury understood, and I, I guess I'm trying to get at my question to you, is would it be sufficient? to establish by asking that one question. Is that what you're saying? That we're short of that question, we could get punitive damages. And that to me seems like kind of an artificial barrier. Because, um, or, or, or do we have to show that he attended a training or saw a poster that, you know, all over the, or that he, you know, it, it's interesting there was a, uh, 
equal opportunity plan for the company, that not the one that they're trying to put into evidence after the trial, but one that was in their trials that they didn't put in. And I think maybe one reason they didn't put it in because it made clear the limits on, and it was their document, the limits on what you could do. So it isn't. Well, well, I'm, Mr. I'm a little bit uh, bothered like Mr. Qualbaum is. Let me use the practical words. Where is the evidence of malice and reckless indifference in this case. I mean, that, 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 those are pretty strong things that you accuse somebody of. Where, where is it? It's, it's not reckless indifference, Your Honor, but it's, it's in a malice or malice or reckless disregard, I think, for the, for the, uh, uh, of federal rights or federal law that applies. And I think where the, is the where, where is the malice? Then? You don't have to show malice. It's malice or reckless disregard. And our argument was reckless right. disregard. But there was malice in this case and on a corporate level, Your Honor. I'll give you one example. Is that Mr. Krebs, who we call who'd been the uh, um, the analytic person who'd been hired and was thought that Mr. Duvall was such a great boss. We named him as a witness, subpoenaed him. We hadn't talked to him. He gets talked to. He gets fired the day after he says that he's going to testify and support Mr. Duvall, which is some evidence of malice in this record toward Mr. Duvall's claim. At, in the district court, what was your argument to the district court? Was it that we're showing malice, reckless indifference, or both? It was, it was both. But it was they they could find malice or was the instruction, and that was what we told the jury. Um, and but the <laughs> the malice was I think if you want to find malice in this record, it's in perhaps inferred. But to take someone who had transformed this marketing program and developed a national reputation, and fire him, and then hire him and then replace him with someone who the the, the, the woman, Miss Free, who got hired, they didn't even know what she was doing at Disney. The, the, sort of, the, the sort of level of sort of disregard and contempt for Mr. Duvall in trying to rebalance the leadership of this institution, I think is a question of whether it constitutes malice or reckless disregard or both. Um, In terms of the jury's ability to connect the dot in this case, you asked, I think, Judge Agee, uh, at the beginning, there's a substantial evidence of the, the lengths that Mr. or the skill that Mr. Duvall brought to his work in building this team is detailed in the brief entirely. That alone was a prima facie case, given the sort of vacuity of the explanations that Mr. Curitan gave for his for his, you know, you have substantial performance. He's within the class. I mean, you have a prima facie case. And then the overlay on that is this diversity plan. And there were three things. One was that the uh, the minutes, the meeting minutes that I just showed that she was talking with Dr. with Judge Qualabam about. But the other is this document at at, at uh, fourteen fifty five of the joint appendix, which is the September two thousand nineteen review. It shows in a year, the year that Mr. Duvall was fired, 
the number of women in leadership roles grew 20% in the company from 45 to 60 something in that year. And so it was that. And then Mr. Curitan's admission, if I may just say this and, and stop, Mr. Curitan's admission to the headhunter that he was not fired for performance. He was fired in the last 12 months. We've had a lot of change at every at the executive and lower management levels looking for a new point of view. That to me, that's why I moved for summary judgment in the case before the trial. I thought that those three bits of evidence showed that they were taking race in, and his gender into account and admitting that he wasn't fired for performance. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Cox. You have some rebuttal time. Uh, yes, sir, Your Honor. Thank you. If I can use my time first to circle back to mitigation and then circle back and follow up and uh, finalize with punitives. Mr. Lourdes said two things with which I take strong disagreement, one legal and one factual. He opened his argument by saying the burden was on no vaunt in terms of showing available work on the mitigation question. That is ordinarily the rule. Ordinarily, the, rule, the burden is on the employer to show the availability of comparable employment. But this is the Wagner case. And as this court said in Wagner, although an employer ordinarily must come forward with evidence that comparable work is available, that is not the case if the plaintiff makes little or no effort to seek employment. And in Wagner, Mrs. Wagner herself admitted that in March of 1997, she stopped looking for work. And the court said once she stopped looking for work, she was not that the employer no longer had to show comparable employment. That's exactly the case. That requires an underlying factual determination. I'm sorry, that was a back pay question. Pardon me. That that, that was a back pay question in the Wagner case. Right. No, I understand. But to, to, in order to decide that question, did they stop? Were they still look? That's a factual question, correct? Correct. Because right. Wagner's testimony herself established she made no attempt to find employment. And that takes me to my second issue that I have with Mr. Largess, which is a factual point. He said, and the district court said as well, the district court concluded factually that Mr. Duvall had networked with his LinkedIn people to find work. He said he networked for connections. Please go back and look at this record. It's a critical point. That's not what Mr. Duvall said. What he said was, I can network on LinkedIn. But then when he was asked directly by counsel, have you reached out on LinkedIn? His response was, I've responded to people who reach out to me. Is it is it, accepting that difference? And yeah, I'm I'm not a LinkedIn user, so I but, but I. so I may not you know ask this exactly right. But it, and, and I, I got the impression that the you know, that the court um you know, Concluded, and that the argument was that the nature of uh, networking may be to some extent um, in this type of employment setting, making it known that you're available and that you can do that by virtue of just putting the information on your LinkedIn account rather than saying, Hey everyone, I'm looking for a job. The fact that you know you post that you're no longer employed is information that that a recruiter then sees and says, "Okay, that, that that's that that's a live target. I'm going to pursue them." So, I, I guess I'm asking whether I, I get your point that that doesn't 
in many ways seem like a whole lot of effort and maybe maybe in comparatively it's not but is it the type of thing that is a form of networking by letting the world know hey i'm i'm open for business for to you recruiters here's what it's not it's not actively seeking employment under brady what he said was, I mean, his LinkedIn page is in the record. The way he let people know he was available is he had a termination date from his Novant position. So that was letting people know he's out there. Seems like it worked. It did work. But again, is this court going to adopt a rule that says as long as you accept work or find it, you don't actually have to go look for it? That's that's a critical rule that would really create a stark difference between blue collar folk who have to go look for work and white collar folk who may or may not, if they're lucky enough to have people call them on the phone. The question is whether it's a, that rule would be that you don't have to look or whether how you look, you know, depends on the circumstances. Fair point. But the evidence undisputed is he didn't look. What he said was whatever happened on LinkedIn, he got some leads. He never applied for the leads. He never applied for any employment. He admits that, which is what takes us out of Wagner. May I, may I make one point on punitives? I think you and Judge Floyd put your finger on exactly Judge Quattlebaum. The Supreme Court has said you don't get punitives in every successful Title VII case. You have to have recklessness or malice. And with respect to managerial employee like Mr. Curitan, they had to show that Mr. Curitan, not someone else, but the decision maker, acted in a way to violate a perceived risk, that he had a perceived risk. I pushed um, I pushed your colleague on that, you know, a case with punitives, you know, relying solely on an inference. And, yeah, it sounds like he kind of had my sense that that's may not be a whole bunch of those that that said, I mean, we're under a rule 50 standard on punitives. And that standard says that, you know, uh, construing the evidence and the like most favorable to um, the non-moving party and considering all inferences or reasonable inferences in their favor, you know, must we come to an opposite or a different conclusion? Why isn't an inference if it's reasonable enough? Because there's no evidence to support it. Basically what he's saying is, basically there's evidence that about his you know, employment history, his position, and the inference from that is that someone who's at that level of a major corporation would have received training. Inferences are evidence; they're not direct evidence. So, I'm look, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm pushing y'all both on it, and I'm trying to see why, um, even if it's not common, it doesn't meet the Rule Fifty standard. Two reasons: number one. Basically, what you would be saying is anytime someone's fired by a senior executive in an American company, you can just infer, right? All he had to do is take 20 seconds and ask Mr. Curitan the same question he had Ms. Blackman. Right. Are you aware of Title VII? They did not do that. They did not put the evidence in. And to create a rule that says we're just going to infer if you're senior enough that you must know, that would be a real departure. I'll, I'll let you go to your second one because I'm interrupting you here. But, but, but why isn't the evidence that Ms. Blackman had that information, at least circumstantial evidence that he, who's in a comparable, maybe a comparable um, corporate level, would have it too. Because what this court has said in the Bandy case and the other cases is what matters in Title VII cases is the state of mind of the decision maker, not other people. The no, decision no, no, maker. Uh, fair. But 
what the point is, why is the, it, is it improper to infer that he had that state of mind because someone at his level of employment within the company also had that exposure? Yes, sir. I mean, imagine if you had a large American corporation where as long as you can show somebody knew it's, it's a violation of Title VII, you can impute it to who the decision maker is. That would be an extraordinary rule. If I may conclude with my second point, it's not just enough under the reckless or indifferent standard, malice or reckless indifference standard, just to say that he knew Title VII meant you couldn't fire people because of race and sex. He also had to have a perceived risk that this termination violated Title VII, right? And Mr. Duvall himself said he thought the diversity plan was properly done when he was there. So if he thought that, then what evidence is there that Mr. Curitan, when firing Mr. Duvall, even if he knew about Title VII, even if you make that inference, what evidence is there that he thought or knew that that act would be a violation of Title VII? Thank you, Your Honors. All right. Thank you, Judge Floyd. Do you have anything further for your counsel? No, sir. <clears throat> um. We appreciate the argument. Uh, this question has nothing to do with the merits of the case. I was just curious, did the parties ever consider uh, mediation or arbitration here? We did. Okay. We actually did a mediation. All right. Uh, thank you very much. I'll ask the uh, clerk to adjourn court for the day, and we'll come down and greet counsel.